The Serpent's Shadow, Chapter 5, A Dance with Death. Cheers, Carter. At least you have the sense to hand me the microphone for important things. Honestly, he drones on and on about his plans for the apocalypse, but he makes no plans at all for the school dance. My brother's priorities are severely skewed. I don't think I was being selfish wanting to go to the dance. Of course, we had serious business to deal with. That's exactly why I insisted on partying first. Our initiates needed a morale boost. They needed a chance to be normal kids, to have friends and live outside Brooklyn House. Something worth fighting for. Even armies in the field might fight better when they take breaks for entertainment. I'm sure some general somewhere said that. By sunset, I was ready to lead my troops into battle. I'd picked out quite a nice black strapless dress and put low, black low lights in my blonde hair with just a touch of dark makeup for that risen-from-the-grave look. I wore simple flats for dancing. Despite what Carter says, I do not wear combat boots all the time, just 90% of the time. The silver Tayet amulet from my mother's jewelry box and the pendant Walt had given me for my last birthday with the Egyptian symbol of eternity, Shen. Walt had an identical amulet among his own collection of talismans, which provided us a magic line of communication and even the ability to summon the other person to our side in emergencies. Unfortunately... The Shen amulets didn't mean we were dating exclusively. Or even dating at all. If Walt had asked me, I think I would have been fine with it. Walt was so kind and gorgeous. Perfect, really, in his own way. Perhaps if he'd asserted himself a bit more, I would have fallen for him and been able to let go of that other boy. The godly one. But... Walt was dying. He had this silly idea that it would be unfair to me if we started a relationship under those circumstances. As if that would stop me. So, we were stuck in this maddening limbo. Flirting, talking for hours, a few times even sharing a kiss when we let our guard down. But eventually, Walt would always pull away and shut me out. (sighs) Why couldn't things be simple? I bring this up because I literally ran into Walt as I was coming down the stairs. Oh, I said. Then I noticed he was still wearing his old muscle shirt, jeans, and no shoes. You're not ready yet? I'm not going, he announced. My mouth fell open. What? Why? Sadie, you and Carter will need me when you visit Thoth. If I'm going to make it, I have to rest. But I forced myself to stop. It wasn't right for me to pressure him. I didn't need magic to see that he was really in great pain. Centuries of magical healing knowledge at our disposal, yet nothing we tried seemed to help. I ask you, what's the point of being a magician if you can't wave your wand and make the people you care about feel better? Right, 
I said, I, I was just hoping. Anything I would have said would have sounded bratty. I wanted to dance with him. Gods of Egypt, I dressed up for him. The mortal boys at school were all right, I suppose, but they seemed quite shallow compared to Walt. Or, yes, fine, compared to Anubis. As for the other boys of Brooklyn House, dancing with them would have made me feel a bit odd, like I was dancing with my cousins. I could stay, I offered, but I suppose I didn't sound very convincing. Walt managed a faint smile. No, go, Sadie. Really, I'm sure I'll feel better when you get back. Have a good time. He brushed past me and climbed the steps. I took several deep breaths. Part of me did want to stay and look after him. Going without him didn't seem right. Then I glanced down into the great room. The older kids were joking and talking, ready to leave. If I didn't go, they might feel obliged to stay too. Something like wet cement settled in my stomach. All the joy and excitement suddenly went out of the evening for me. For months, I'd been struggling to adjust to life in New York after so many years in London. I'd been forced to balance life as a young magician with the challenges of being an ordinary schoolgirl. Now, just when this dance had seemed to offer me a chance to combine both worlds and have a lovely night out, my hopes were dashed. I'd still have to go and pretend to have fun but I'd only be doing it out of duty to make the others feel better. I wondered if this was what being a grown-up felt like. Horrible. The only thing that cheered me up was Carter. He emerged from his room dressed like a junior professor in a coat and tie, button-down shirt and trousers. Poor boy. Of course he'd never been to a dance any more than he'd been to school. He had no clue whatsoever. You look wonderful. I tried to keep a straight face. You do realize it's not a funeral. Shut up, he grumbled. Let's get this over with. The school the kids and I attended was Brooklyn Academy for the Gifted. Everyone called it Bag. We had no end of jokes about this. The students were baggies. The glamour girls with nose jobs and Botox lips were plastic bags. Our alumni were old bags, and naturally, our headmistress, Mrs. Laird, was the bag lady. Despite the name, the school was quite nice. All the students were gifted in some sort of art, music, or drama. Our schedules were flexible, with lots of independent study time, which worked perfectly for us magicians. We could pop off to battle monsters as needed, and As magicians, it wasn't difficult for us to pass ourselves off as gifted. Alyssa used her earth magic to make sculptures. Walt specialized in jewelry. Cleo was an amazing writer, since she could retell stories that had been forgot since the days of ancient Egypt. As for me, I needed no magic. I was a natural at drama. Stop laughing, Carter. You might not expect this in the middle of Brooklyn, but our campus was like a park 
with acres of green lawns, well-tended trees and hedges, even a small lake with ducks and swans. The dance was held in the pavilion in front of the administration building. A band played in the gazebo. Lights were strung in the trees. Teacher chaperones walked the perimeter on bush patrol, making sure none of the older students sneaked off into the shrubbery. I tried not to think about it, but the music and crowd reminded me of Dallas the night before. A very different sort of party, which had ended badly. I remember J.D. Grissom clasping my hand, wishing me luck before he ran off to save his wife. Horrible guilt welled inside me. I forced it down. It wouldn't do the Grissoms any good for me to start crying in the middle of the dance. Certainly, it wouldn't help my friends enjoy themselves. As our group dispersed into the crowd, I turned to Carter, who was fiddling with his tie. Right, he said. You need to dance. Carter looked at me in horror. What? I called over one of my mortal friends, a lovely girl named Lacey. She was a year younger than I, so she looked up to me greatly. I know, it's hard not to. She had cute blonde pigtails, a mouthful of braces, and was possibly the only person at the dance more nervous than my brother. She'd seen pictures of Carter before, however, and seemed to find him hot. I didn't hold that against her. In most ways, she had excellent taste. Lacey, Carter, I introduced them. You look like your pictures, Lacey grinned. The bands of her braces were alternating pink and white to match her dress. Carter said, Uh, he doesn't know how to dance, I told Lacey. I'd be ever so grateful if you could teach him. Sure, she squealed. She grabbed my brother's hand and swept him away. I started to feel better. Perhaps I could have fun tonight after all. Then I turned and found myself face to face with one of my not-so-favorite mortals, Drew Tanaka, head of the popular girl clique with her supermodel goon squad in tow. Sadie! Drew threw her arm around me. Her perfume was a mixture of roses and tear gas. So glad you're here, sweetie. If I'd known you were coming, you could have ridden in the limo with us. Her friends made a sympathetic, aww, sound and grinned to show they were not at all sincere. They were dressed more or less the same. In the latest silky designer bits, their parents had no doubt commissioned for them during the last fashion week. Drew was the tallest and most glamorous, I use the word as an insult, with awful pink eyeliner and frizzy black curls that were apparently Drew's own personal crusade to bring back the 1980s perm. She wore a pendant, a glittering platinum and diamond D, possibly her initial, or her grade average. I gave her a tight smile. A limo, wow, thanks for that. But between you, your friends, and your egos, I doubt there would have been extra room. Drew pouted. That's not nice, hon. Where is Walt? Is the poor baby still sick? 
Behind her, some of the girls coughed into their fists, mimicking Walt. I wanted to pull my staff from the duot and turn them all into worms for the ducks. I was pretty sure I could manage that, and I doubted anyone would miss them. But I kept my temper. Lacey had warned me about Drew the first day of school. Apparently, the two of them had gone to summer camp together. Blah, blah, I didn't really listen to the details. And Drew had been just as much of a tyrant here. That did not, however, mean she could be a tyrant with me. Walt's at home, I said. I did tell him you'd be here. Funny, that didn't seem to motivate him much. What a shame, Drew sighed. You know, maybe he's not really sick. He might just be allergic to you, hon. That does happen. I should go to his place with some chicken soup or something. Where does he live? She smiled sweetly. I didn't know if she actually fancied Walt or if she was just pretending because she hated me. Either way, the idea of turning her into an earthworm was becoming more appealing. Before I could do anything rash, a familiar voice behind me said, Hello, Sadie. The other girls let out a collective gasp. My pulse quickened from slow walk to 50-meter dash. I turned and found that, yes, indeed, the god Anubis had crashed our dance. He had the nerve to look amazing, as usual. He's so annoying that way. He wore skinny black trousers with black leather boots and a biker's jacket over an arcade fire t-shirt. His dark hair was naturally disheveled, as if he'd just woken up, and I fought the urge to run my fingers through it. His brown eyes glittered with amusement. Either he was happy to see me, or he enjoyed seeing me flustered. Oh my god, Drew whimpered. Who? Anubis ignored her, bless him for that, and held out his elbow for me. A sweet old-fashioned gesture. May I have this dance? I suppose, I said as noncommittally as I could. I looped my arm through his, and we left the plastic bags behind us, all of them muttering, Oh my god, oh my god! No, actually, I wanted to say, he's my amazingly hot boy god. Find your own. The uneven paving stones made for a dangerous dance floor. All around us, kids were tripping over each other. Anubis didn't help matters, as all the girls turned and gawked at him as... He led me through the crowd. I was glad Anubis had my arm. My emotions were so jumbled, I felt dizzy. I was ridiculously happy that he was there. I felt crushingly guilty that poor Walt was at home alone while I strolled arm in arm with Anubis. But I was relieved that Walt and Anubis weren't both here together. That would have been beyond awkward. The relief made me a bit feel guiltier, and so on. Gods of Egypt, I was a mess. As we reached the middle of the dance floor, the band suddenly switched from a dance number to a love ballad. Was that you're doing? 
I asked Anubis. He smiled, which wasn't much of an answer. He put one hand on my hip and clasped my other hand like a proper gentleman. We swayed together. I'd heard of dancing on air, but it took me a few steps to realize we were actually levitating. A few millimeters off the ground. Not enough for anyone to notice, just enough for us to glide across the stones while others stumbled. A few meters away, Carter looked quite awkward as Lacey showed him how to slow dance. Really, Carter, it isn't quantum physics. I gazed up at Anubis's warm brown eyes and his exquisite lips. He'd kissed me once before, for my birthday last spring, and I'd never quite got over it. You'd think a god of death would have cold lips, but that just wasn't the case at all. I tried to clear my head. I knew Anubis must be here for some reason, but it was awfully hard to focus. I thought, um, I gulped and barely managed not to drool on myself. Oh, brilliant, Sadie, I thought. Let's try for a complete sentence now, shall we? I thought you could only appear in places of death, I said. Anubis laughed gently. This is a place of death, Sadie. The Battle of Brooklyn Heights, 1776. Hundreds of American and British troops died right where we're dancing. How romantic, I muttered. So we're dancing on their graves? Anubis shook his head. Most never received proper burials. That's why I decided to visit you here. These ghosts could use a night of entertainment. Just like your initiates. Suddenly, spirits were twirling all around us. Luminous apparitions in 18th century clothes. Some wore the red uniforms of British regulars. Others had ragtag militia outfits. They pirouetted with lady ghosts in plain farm dresses or fancy silk. A few of the posh women had piles of curly hair that would have made even Drew jealous. The ghosts seemed to be dancing to a different song. I strained my ears and could faintly hear violins and a cello. None of the regular mortals seemed to notice the spectral invasion. Even my friends from Brooklyn House were oblivious. I watched as a ghostly couple waltz straight through Carter and Lacey. As Anubis and I danced, Brooklyn Academy seemed to fade and the ghosts became more real. One soldier had a musket wound in his chest. A British officer had a tomahawk sticking out of his powdered wig. We danced between worlds, waltzing side by side with smiling, gruesomely slaughtered phantoms. Anubis certainly knew how to shoe a girl a good time. You're doing it again. I said, taking me out of phase, or whatever you call it. A little, he admitted. We need privacy to talk. I promised you I'd visit you in person. And you did. But it's going to cause trouble. This may be the last time I can see you. There's been grumbling about our situation. I narrowed my eyes. Was the God of the Dead blushing? Our situation, I repeated. 
us. The words set my ears buzzing. I tried to keep my voice even. As far as I'm aware, there is no official us. Why would this be the last time we can talk? He was definitely blushing now. Please, just listen. There's so much I need to tell you. Your brother has the right idea. The shadow of Apophis is your best hope, but only one person can teach you the magic you need. Thoth may guide you somewhat, but I doubt he'll reveal the secret spells. It's too dangerous. Hold on, hold on. I was still reeling from the comment about us, and the idea that this might be the last time I saw Anubis. That sent my brain cells into panic mode. Thousands of tiny Sadies running around in my skull, screaming and waving their arms. I tried to focus. You mean Apophis does have a shadow? It could be used to execrate... Please don't use that word. Anubis grimaced. But yes, an intelligent entities, all intelligent entities have souls. So all of them have shadows, even Apophis. I know this much, being the guide of the dead. I have to make souls my business. Could his shadow be used against him? In theory, yes, but there are many dangers. Naturally. Anubis twirled me through a pair of colonial ghosts. Other students watched us, whispering as we danced, but their voices sounded distant and distorted, as if they were on the far side of a waterfall. Anubis studied me with a sort of tender regret. Sadie, I wouldn't set you on this path if there was another way. I don't want you to die. I can agree with that, I said. Even talking about this sort of magic is forbidden, he warned. But you need to know what you're dealing with. The shoot is the least understood part of the soul. It's how to explain... A soul of last resort, an afterimage of the person's life force. You've heard that the souls of the wicked are destroyed in the Hall of Judgment. When Amit devours their hearts, I said. Yes. Anubis lowered his voice. We say that this completely destroys the soul, but that's not true. The shadow lingers. Occasionally, not often, Osiris has decided to uh, review a judgment. As someone was found guilty but new evidence comes to light, there must be a way to retrieve a soul from oblivion. I tried to grasp that. My thoughts felt suspended in midair like my feet, not able to connect with anything solid. So you're saying the shadow could be used to um, reboot a soul? Like a computer's backup drive? Anubis looked at me strangely. Ugh, I'm sorry, I said. I've been spending too much time with my geeky brother. He speaks like a computer. No, no, Anubis said. That's actually a good analogy. I just never thought of it that way. Yes, the soul isn't completely destroyed until the shadow is destroyed. So in extreme cases... With the right magic, it's possible to reboot the soul using the shuit. 
Conversely, if you were to destroy a god's shadow, or even Apophis's shadow as part of an ex, uh, the sort of spell you mentioned, the shuit would be infinitely more powerful than a regular statue, I guessed. We could destroy him, possibly without destroying ourselves. Anubis glanced around us nervously. Yes, but you can see why this sort of magic is secret. The gods never want such knowledge in the hands of a mortal magician. This is why we always hide our shadows. If a magician were able to capture a god's shuit and use it to threaten us... Right. My mouth felt dry. But I'm on your side. I'd only use the spell on Apophis. Surely Thoth will understand that. Perhaps. Anubis didn't sound convinced. Start with Thoth, at least. Hopefully, he'll see the need to assist you. I fear, though, you may still need better guidance. More dangerous guidance. I gulped. You said only one person could teach us the magic. Who? The only magician crazy enough to ever research such a spell. His trial is tomorrow at sunset. You'll have to visit your father before then. Wait, what? Wind blew through the pavilion. Anubis's hand tightened on mine. We have to hurry, he said. There's more I need to tell you. Something is happening with the spirits of the dead. They're being... Look, there. He pointed to a pair of nearby specters. The woman danced barefoot in a simple white linen dress. The man wore breeches and a frock coat like a colonial farmer, but his neck was canted at a funny angle as if he'd been hanged. Black mist coiled around the man's legs like ivy. Another three waltz steps and he was completely engulfed. The murky tendrils pulled him into the ground and he disappeared. The woman in white kept dancing by herself, apparently unaware that her partner had just been consumed by evil fingers of smog. What? What was that? I asked. We don't know, Anubis said. As Apophis grows stronger, it's happening more frequently. Souls of the dead are disappearing, being drawn further down into the duat. We don't know where they're going. I almost stumbled. My mother, is she all right? Anubis gave me a pained look, and I knew the answer. Mum had warned me. We might never see her again unless we discovered a way to beat Apophis. She'd sent me that message, urging me to find the serpent's shadow. It had to be connected to her dilemma somehow. She's missing, I guessed. My heart pounded against my ribs. It's got something to do with this business about shadows, hasn't it? Sadie, I wish I knew. Your father's... He's trying his best to find her, but... The wind interrupted him. Have you ever stuck your hand out of a moving car and felt the air push against you? It was a bit like that, but ten times more powerful. A wedge of force pushed Anubis and me apart. 
I staggered backward, my feet no longer levitating. Sadie. Anubis reached out, but the wind pushed him further away. Stop that, said a squeaky voice between us. No public displays of affection on my watch. The air took on human form. At first it was just a faint silhouette. Then it became more solid and colorful. Before me stood a man in an old-fashioned aviator's outfit. Leather helmet, goggles, scarf, and a bomber's jacket. Like photos I'd seen of the Royal Air Force pilots during World War II. He wasn't flesh and blood, though. His form swirled and shifted. I realized he was put together from blown rubbish. Specks of dirt, scraps of paper, bits of dandelion fuzz, dried leaves, all churning about, but held together in such a tight collage by the wind that, from a distance, he might have passed for a normal mortal. He wagged his finger at Anubis. This is the final insult, boy. His voice hissed like air from a balloon. You have been warned numerous times. Hold on, I said. Who are you? And Anubis is hardly a boy. He's 5,000 years old. Exactly, the aviator snapped. A mere child, and I didn't give you permission to speak, girl. The aviator exploded. The blast was so powerful, my ears popped, and I fell on my bum. Around me, the other mortals, my friends, teachers, and all the students, simply collapsed. Anubis and the ghosts seemed unaffected. The aviator formed again, glaring down at me. I struggled to my feet and tried to summon my staff from the duot. No such luck. What have you done? I demanded. Sadie, it's all right, Anubis said. Your friends are only unconscious. Shu just lowered the air pressure. Shu? I demanded. Shu who? Anubis pressed his fingers to his temples. Sadie, this is Shu. My great-grandfather. Then it struck me. She was one of those ridiculously godly names I'd heard before. I tried to place it. Ah, the god of... Flip-flops. No, wait. Leaky balloons. No. Air! Shu hissed. God of the air! His body dissolved into a tornado of debris. When he formed again, he was in ancient Egyptian costume, bare-chested with a white loincloth and a giant ostrich feather sprouting from his braided headband. He changed back into RFA, RAF clothes. Stick with the pilot's outfit, I said. The ostrich feather doesn't really work for you. Shu made an unfriendly whooshing sound. I'd prefer to be invisible, thank you very much. But you mortals have polluted the air so badly it's getting harder and harder. It's dreadful what you've done. The last few millennia? Haven't you people heard of spare the air days? Carpooling? Hybrid engines? And don't get me started on cows. Did you know that every cow belches and farts 
over 100 gallons of methane a day? There are one and a half billion cows in the world. Do you have any idea what that does to my respiratory system? Uh, from his jacket pocket, Shu produced an inhaler and puffed on it. Shocking. I raised an eyebrow at Anubis, who looked mortally embarrassed. Or perhaps immortally embarrassed? Shu, he said, we were just talking. If you'll let us finish. Oh, talking, Shu bellowed, no doubt releasing his own share of methane. While holding hands and dancing and other degenerate behavior. Don't play, innocent boy. I've been a chaperone before, you know. I kept your grandparents apart for eons. Suddenly I remembered the story of Newt and Geb. Sky and Earth. Ra had commanded Newt's father, Shu, to keep the two lovers apart so that they would never have children who might someday usurp Ra's throne. That strategy hadn't worked, but apparently Shu was still trying. The air god waved his hand in disgust at the unconscious mortals, some of whom were just starting to groan and stir. And now, Anubis, I find you in this den of iniquity, this morass questionable behavior, this, this. School, I suggested. Yes. Shu nodded so vigorously, his head disintegrated into a cloud of leaves. You heard the decree of the gods, boy. You've become entirely too close to this mortal. You are hereby banned from further contact. What? I shouted. That's ridiculous. Who decreed this? Shu made a sound like a blown-out tire. Either he was laughing or giving me a windy raspberry. The entire council, girl, led by Lord Horus and Lady Isis. I felt as if I was dissolving into scraps of rubbish myself. Isis and Horus? I couldn't believe it. Stabbed in the back by my two supposed friends? Isis and I were going to have words about this. I turned to Anubis, hoping he'd tell me it was a lie. He raised his hands miserably. Sadie, I was trying to tell you. Gods are not allowed to become directly uh, involved with mortals. It's only possible when a god inhabits a human form. And, and as you know, I've never worked that way. I gritted my teeth. I wanted to argue that Anubis had quite a nice form, but he told me often that he could only manifest in dreams or in places of death. Unlike other gods, he'd never taken a human form. It was so bloody unfair. We hadn't even dated properly. One kiss six months ago, and Anubis was grounded for seeing me forever? You can't be serious. I'm not sure who made me angrier, the fussy air god chaperone or Anubis himself. You're not really going to let them rule you like this. He has no choice, Shu cried. The effort made him cough so badly, his chest exploded into dandelion fluff. He took another blast from his inhaler. 
Brooklyn ozone layers. <sighs> Deplorable. Now, off with you, Anubis. No more contact with this mortal. It's not proper. And as for you, girl, stay away from him. You have more important things to do. Oh, yeah? I said. And what about you, Mr. Trash Tornado? We're preparing for war, and the most important thing you can do is keep people from waltzing? The air pressure rose suddenly. Blood roared in my head. See here, girl. She growled. I've already helped you more than you deserve. I heeded that Russian boy's prayer. I brought him here all the way from St. Petersburg to speak with you. So, shoo! The wind blasted me backward. The ghosts blew away like smoke. The unconscious mortals began to stir, shielding their faces from the debris. Russian boy, I shouted over the gale. What on earth are you talking about? Shu disbanded into rubbish and swirled around Anubis, lifting him off his feet. Sadie. Anubis tried to fight his way toward me, but the storm was too strong. Shu, at least let me tell her about Walt. She has a right to know. I could barely hear him above the wind. Did you say Walt? I shouted. What about him? Anubis said something I couldn't make out. Then the flurry of debris completely obscured him. When the wind died, both gods were gone. I stood alone on the dance floor, surrounded by dozens of kids and adults who were starting to wake up. I was about to run to Carter to make sure he was all right. Yes, Carter, honestly, I was. Then, at the edge of the pavilion, a young man stepped into the light. He wore a gray military outfit with a wool coat too heavy for the warm September night. His enormous ears seemed to be the only things holding up his oversized hat. A rifle was slung across his shoulder. He couldn't have been more than 17. And though he was definitely not from any of the schools at the dance, he looked vaguely familiar. St. Petersburg, Shu had said. Yes, I'd met this boy briefly last spring. Carter and I had been running from the Hermitage Museum. This boy had tried to stop us. He'd been disguised as a guard, but revealed himself as a magician from the Russian gnome, one of the servants of the evil Vlad Menshikov. I grabbed my staff from the duot, successfully this time. The boy raised his hands in surrender. Yet, he pleaded. Then, in halting English, he said, Sadie Kane, we need to talk.